Good morning, everyone. I had to go back to the reading. The wrong readings were read, uh, so I want to correct that. Uh, one, because it'll be important uh, for my homily. <laughs> Uh, so let me go through the, uh, the first reading and uh, the second reading uh, very quickly. So the first one comes from the book of Genesis. Uh, God put Abraham to the test. He called him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son Isaac, your only one whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There you shall offer him up as a holocaust on a height that I will point out to you. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Then he reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the Lord's messenger called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he answered. Do not lay your hand on the boy, said the messenger. Do not do the least thing to him. I know now how devoted you are to God. Since you did not withhold from me your only beloved son. And Abraham looked about. He spied a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he went and took the ram and offered it up as a holocaust in place of his son. Again the Lord's messenger called to Abraham from heaven and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you acted as you did in not withholding from me, your only beloved son, I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies, and your descendants, all the nations of the earth, shall find blessing. All this because you obeyed my command, the word of the Lord. Our second reading for the second uh, uh, Sunday of Lent comes from Romans, actually. And this is a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for all of us, how will he not also give us everything else along with him? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who acquits us. Who will condemn Christ Jesus, it is who died, or rather, was raised, who also is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. The word of the Lord. Amen. My sisters thinks that the book was, mis was in the wrong place, <laughs> so the lecture went with what, uh, what was said. But it is important that the reading, uh, like I said, uh, because it matches up very nice with the Gospel, but that second reading uh, becomes very important for us because what it tells us ultimately is that no matter what's going on with you, if God is for you, and He is, you can face whatever it may be. It may be difficult, but you will be able to face it, and you will not be overcome ultimately by this. This becomes important because we heard now the first reading, or two first readings, but the first reading about Abraham, and I will speak more about that. But also, um, Jesus will be on the cross, and uh, he will be speaking to the Father. And uh, my friends, uh, uh, this becomes important for us to understand. This is one of the contexts of today's, of the second Sunday of Lent, that no matter what happens, if 
God is for us. And we are with Him. Uh, nothing will overcome us. On the second Sunday of Lent, we hear the account of the Transfiguration. Remember what Mark's Gospel. Mark's whole Gospel, his whole point, is to tell you who Jesus is. The other two, yes. But Mark, remember, he's the shortest of the Gospels, and his main point is who Jesus is. He's telling you who he is. And also Mark does something. Uh, he positions the apostles and the disciples kind of in a negative light. Kind of like they're a little bit, a little slow. Uh, <laughs> that's the best I don't know how to put it. He puts them in a bad light. But in contrast, he shows Jesus then as the perfect disciple. And we are to look to Jesus if we want to know how to speak to the Father. We look to Jesus if we want to know how to act on this earth. We look to Jesus about prayer, about everything. So Jesus is put forth then as the perfect disciple. And rightly so. This is in contrast to the apostles, right, at the time. So we have this event of the transfiguration on the mountain. And it has a great meaning uh, for the apostles because they see him in a way they have never seen him before. The other thing about Mark's gospel, uh, this transfiguration account becomes the centerpiece, literally, of the gospel. So if that was the centerpiece, that means there's a first and a last. The first piece will be the baptism of the Lord. Because there, something happens, right? There's a baptism, and then the voice of the Father is heard. Listen, this is my Son. You see what Mark's doing? This is my Son. This is the Son of God. And then we have the transfiguration, which is the middle. And what does the Father say? This is my Son. Listen to him. You see what Mark's doing? His whole point is to tell you who Jesus is, because uh, they're not getting it. And then the end, that means... The last piece is Calvary. Something happens there. But it's not the Father who speaks that, but the pagan centurion says, truly, this is the Son of God. So you see, Mark is consistent. Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. You're not getting it, you're not getting it, you're not getting it. So we have for today this middle piece, the transfiguration, and the uh, his friends see him in a way that they have never been seen before. They witness an aspect that was, if you will, hidden from them, uh, although Jesus spoke about it. <laughs> um, they saw the glory that belonged to the eternal Son of God. And uh, immediately, um, so what happened six days before the transfiguration, Jesus tells them, I'm going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. They don't like it, they don't understand it, they don't know what he's talking about. So now we have this event of the Transfiguration. And my friends, right immediately after the Transfiguration, Jesus will face Jerusalem. He will enter Jerusalem for the last time as Jesus of Nazareth. He will die. He will offer himself a sacrifice. So we're told he goes up on the mountain and he prays before fulfilling the final piece of the mission. The other thing Mark's putting forth to us is about prayer. Jesus prayed all the time, all the time. But 
particularly more intent and intensely when challenges came. That is a challenge. That was real. You see what Mark's doing? As a matter of fact, uh, the prayer on the cross that Jesus is praying are not just random words. They're typical of Jewish people. Jesus is praying a psalm. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He is praying. He is communing with the Father. He is talking to the Father. He's using the very scriptures that would be typical of a Jewish man of his time. Sometimes we think he's thinking something else or that it's some kind of random. It's not random. It's actual prayer. He's intensely praying now in this time. My friends, remember in the baptism we are told what happens. The heavens open. Yes. Uh, the clouds part. Yes. A voice comes. Yes. Remember what the clouds represent in Scripture? Remember on what happens on the mountain when Moses is getting the cloud comes. Uh, to uh, Solomon, the cloud comes. It represents the presence of God, the Father. So at the baptism, the clouds open, the heavens open, the cloud, some clouds moved and the Father spoke. This is my son, listen to him. On the mountain, the cloud comes. They already know what's going on. The, uh -oh. the Father's here. Uh -oh. He's speaking. This is my son. Listen to him. And on Calvary, we are told darkness enveloped the land. How does darkness envelop the land in midday? We know this very well in the Pacific Northwest. The clouds come. Clouds covered. What does the clouds represent? The Father's presence. This is important. Christ is hanging on the cross. We hear these words, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So he's praying intensely. And yet the presence of the clouds tell him and us, My Father is here. Here. These are important pieces that we miss when we just skim through the gospel quickly. Things that you must know from the Old Testament into the New. So my friends, this event of this transfiguration is meant not only for Christ, of course, but for us. For those disciples of the time also. And it's, so it's a bit of a theophany, it's a bit of an epiphany. When the transfiguration is open, over, Jesus picks himself up and goes to do what is necessary to sacrifice his life. The apostles, uh, through this event, come to know something. They need to know that Jesus is more than a rabbi. He's more than some miracle worker. He's more than just some prophet. And they need to be assured that what is coming, this is going to be a great scandal. This dying on the cross was reserved for the worst possible human person ever. The worst criminal. And it was a scandal. So the Father is preparing the apostles, the disciples, and us 
so that we will remain faithful when we even see this that seems horrible. My friends, um, it also tells us what awaits after the cross. Glory. Glory awaits. And if we remain faithful, if we remain faithful, it awaits us also. My friends, um, the apostles, the disciples of time, have been waiting a long time for something beautiful, and the transfiguration speaks to that. They have been waiting uh, for the salvation of the world. And that's what the transfiguration glimpses for them. They see something that they've never seen before. They would also see that. The hope is that they would remember that time on the mountain. Because the time on the hill is coming. And so our Lord is transfigured in glory on the mountain. His face dazzles as like the sun. And his clothes become radiant as light itself. And in the Greek, uh, it's different. The, the light is emanating from him. The words they use, it's coming out of him. And this is different, because remember, who's there with them? Moses and Elijah. The great, at that time up to Jesus, Elijah was considered to be the preeminent of the prophets. No one greater. Moses, the greatest one who gave, who spoke on behalf of God, and gave the law, told you what God commanded, you see? And Moses, we remember in Exodus, uh, his face reflected the glory of God. Remember, so much so they had to, he put a veil on. Moses reflected the glory, like a suntan. Jesus, it emanates from him. So the Father's trying to tell them something. He's told them, this is my son. But now they see God on this mountain. And Moses and Elijah, we don't know what they're talking about. I'm really curious about it. Super curious about what they're talking about. Now, there's a group of theologians that say they are uh, comforting Jesus. And I'm like, well, I'm not the smartest one around, but comforting Jesus? Moses and Elijah are comforting the Son of God? No, no, no. Anything's possible, but no, no, I don't think so. I think something else is being discussed. But there they are. And my friends, again, they represent, up until Jesus' time, the greatest of the prophet and the greatest of the lawgiver. And we're told, when it comes to Peter, he's so dumbfounded, he doesn't, he, he didn't know what to say. So he says, let's build some tents. We laugh, but there's a reason for that. You see, the Jewish people in the Messianic time thought they would return to the desert area, which would be beautiful, and they would live in tents. So Peter is like, look what's happening. The Father's here. Look, 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 look. This is the Messianic time. It's time to build the tents. I know we laugh, but we're told Peter didn't know what to say. He was so, what the heck's going on? 
You better build some tents. But this is the reason why uh, this is included. These details have great significance. So my friends, um, Peter is utterly amazed at what he sees. And uh, like I said, the, the Israelites felt that they would be back in tents again, but in a beautiful way. And, uh, and so they, um, the first thing that comes to his mind, because he's so disheveled by everything, is, well, look, we're going to get the, the, get the tents. And uh, my friends, um, we are told, uh, Jesus tells them, don't talk about this until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And we're told uh, that they still don't get it because he said, you know, the scripture tells us, and they were wondering, what does that mean? Rising from the dead. Who's with Jesus on the mountain? Elijah and Moses. Are they dead? Did they die? Because the disciples are wondering, what does rise from the dead mean? They're looking and they say, well, here's two dead people talking to Jesus. Maybe they're not dead. What does it tell us? First, that God has power over life and death, the Father. But there's something else that you don't know. Uh, there's this little bit of thought in the Jewish community back then. Elijah. Do you remember what happened to him? Elijah, 2 Kings 2.11. Remember last week I told you Elijah had to prepare for the next prophet? Elisha. Elisha's with Elijah and Elijah gets in a fiery chariot with fiery horses and bye-bye. Off to heaven he went. He didn't die. We have the testimony of the next prophet, Elisha. Bye-bye. <laughs> the Jews remember this. So, okay, well maybe Elisha didn't die. Now Moses is a little trickier because we're told in Deuteronomy 34 that Moses was not permitted to go to the Promised Land because you know, he misbehaved. And we're told that he died when he was 120 years old. But that nobody knows where he's buried. So you have to kind of read between the line. He died, but nobody knows where the body is. He died, but nobody knows where the body is. But there's also something else in a few lines down. The last time we saw him, he was full of vigor. He was healthy as a horse. Healthy as a horse. He died, but no one knows where his body's at. So the thought was, maybe he didn't die. But God did something different for him. So this helps out, because, you know, didn't you guys pick up? They didn't understand what rising from the dead was, yet there was two people who were dead. Right there, I shouldn't explain. Well, this explains why they were a little bit stumped because they didn't think the two of them died anyway. That God has the ability to do what he needs to do. So this helps us. So uh, maybe the apostles are not so ignorant after all. <laughs> you know, they're just trying to understand and interpret the Old Testament also. So here we are uh, on this mountain of transfiguration. And uh, Jesus is supported by the apostles. They're still learning. And there's a lesson for us that our path also 
will hardly be different from the disciples in that we will have our crosses to carry just as Jesus told us. And my friends, we are to listen to him because one of the other significant meetings when, when the transfiguration was done, the apostles looked and all they saw was Jesus. There was, Moses was gone and Elijah was gone. That means from this point on we listen to Jesus and only Jesus. He is the only one who gives revelation from this point on. Nobody else gives revelation from that point on. And this is the deepest core meaning of the transfiguration piece when the two, when the greatest prophet and the greatest lawgiver disappears, if you will. And so uh, Jesus said, my disciples will have to carry a cross. Those crosses come in different things. They come as the breakup of a marriage. They come from disease. They come from different things. Remember what the second reading was about. If God is for you, you will be able to face everything. And glory will await you. And so Jesus says, you will have to carry a cross as my disciple, but there will be glory to follow for you. For there is no way to be a disciple of Jesus without the cross. No way. But that cross takes many forms, and there is glory that awaits as long as we are in union with Christ. And uh, the cross has become symbols of expiation for us also, as long as we are in union with Christ. We must look to Jesus for the true meaning of crosses when they come, but also to have the strength to bear it in this world. And the, the transfiguration also has another meaning to it, a meaning of uh, a higher level for us Christians, a dimension yet to be seen. And what a blessed one it is. Our baptisms have begun, as it were, the transfiguration. Baptisms transfigure as us into children of God and collectively as the very body of Christ on earth. And through faithfulness, what happened to Jesus on the mountain will happen to those disciples who believe in Him. And one day, we will be changed utterly also. For the faithful disciple, there are really only two choices. The cross, born in love and in union with Christ, or not. And the not includes no hope, no glory, no life eternal. The other piece about discipleship is you must pray. You must. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ without praying. For Jesus becomes the supreme example of a disciple in Mark's Gospel, and Jesus prayed all the time. And he prayed even more intently when something was happening to him. That was a great challenge. And my friends, All this happens now. Recall a conversation between Jesus and a woman at a well. The context of it is worship and prayer. And they're discussing what they're going to do. And Jesus, in part of the conversation, says, for those who will believe in me, for those who will worship, because Jesus said, there they will worship in spirit. For those who will pray, he said, even now, 
a wellspring of life-giving water will bubble up within them now. Because he tells the woman, if you would have known this, you would have asked, and I would have given it to you now. And in baptism, we receive that. So those who pray have this life-giving stream within them already. Now, which allows you to face joys in this world, absolutely, but the trials or the crosses. So you must pray always, not just on Sunday for the hour inside the church, but always. He promised, He promised that life-giving stream within you, even now, was a foretaste of heaven. This is the strength of the Christians, our hope, our desire, our love. So my friends, um, we need to do this. So you cannot be a disciple and not pray. It's not going to work for you. Now, the first reading. I've been here seven years with you, we've discussed it, but I will go through it quickly, because a lot of times that first reading of Abraham and the sacrifice, uh, it offends people. So I need you to suspend your thoughts about this. In Abraham's time, human sacrifice was commonplace. You offered human sacrifice to gods. He was surrounded by tribes that did this, but it gets even more sinister. They would offer children. It was commonplace. This is what they did. Do you remember when Jesus uses Gehenna? Do you remember what Gehenna? Yes, we understand it as hell, but Gehenna was the place, the dump, outside of the city, but before it was a dump, it was the place of sacrifice of human children. So, in Abraham's time, you offered God the very best. And what was the very best for Abraham? His only son that he had been waiting 80 years for. Think in Abraham, put your feet and your thoughts in Abraham's shoes now. Read what he did. He didn't understand. But the scriptures tell us he reasoned what God is able to do all things, including raise the dead. See how that second reading works in with God. So the first reading talks to us about many things, about faithfulness, about trust, and about confidence in God. But now we understand it was commonplace to offer human sacrifice. We are told Abraham raises his hand and gets ready. And the angel comes and says, don't lay a finger on him. Don't touch him. What is God doing? Clearly, and for all time, without any mistake, God does not desire human sacrifice. 
He does not desire human sacrifice. He does not desire that you kill. And it becomes very clear to Abraham and his descendants, no human sacrifice. Ever. God desires faithfulness and dedication of the heart. And as Jesus said, you will worship Him in spirit. But did the world learn anything from that story of Abraham? Because even up into most recent times, people have killed in God's name. It does not bring God glory, nor does he desire, he detests it. Abraham is known as the father of faith for Islam, for Judaism, for Christianity. We are not to kill, especially in his name and for his glory. This becomes the absolute lesson of that first reading. So I hope you learn to read it and as much as it recalls us to think about what it is that's happening. Revisit it and see. Because people are like, oh, how could God do that? Understand what God ultimately was doing. Putting an end, finally, to the notion that He desired killing and human sacrifice. Now the other piece of the story is that uh, by contrast, it tells us how much God loves you and I. He would not accept Abraham's sacrifice of his own son. But for you, for you, he would accept his son's sacrifice. That is love. Don't ever doubt God loves you. 